Hey, and welcome. It's the Android Central Podcast, and it's Thursday, February 27th, 2020. It's a leap year. Don't forget, there is a February 29th in two days. Um, this week, Android, Android Martinick, as, uh, as oh, I want as to I'm do. Known. Every once in a while, Andrew, changing welcome my back. business, changing my business cards, changing my Twitter <laughs> handle, absolutely everything. I'm your boss. I can make this happen. I can tell the printers what to print on your business cards. Yeah, just you're saying. Change, change my Slack name. It's just I'm I have disappear. said that so many times over the years, and then every once in a while, I'm like, I should, I should just troll him, um, but I feel <laughs> bad about it, and then I do it accidentally. So. Sorry, not yeah, sorry, I guess. This is my it's my um my exit strategy too, just in case I need to disappear into a pseudonym and then you know gracefully hand it off to somebody else. Right. Nobody would know because it's clearly <laughs> not you. It's not they even start, close. They start calling me Andrew again all of a sudden. Well, I mean, of of any day to call you Android Martinick, today is the day because we just published our Galaxy S20 Ultra review. That's oh, why yeah. you're on the show. Um it's early Thursday morning. We uh you know, you've been working pretty much nonstop all week. You had a bit of a break in there for some LG stuff, which we'll talk about later. But mm-hmm. this podcast, if uh, if you're not really interested in the Galaxy S20 Ultra and hearing about the the Galaxy S20 as a um, as a series, this is probably not the pod for you. Go listen to Reply All. The latest episode was was really good. All right. Oh, um, I haven't listened yet. So let's let's dive in. So you've been spending you spent the last week with the Galaxy S20 Ultra. And um, this is a $1,400 phone. So right off the bat, it's not really an accessible price for a lot of people. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. What do you get for the money? So there are two ways to categorize this. Obviously, it kind of depends where your starting point is. If you're somebody that was already looking at flagship phones and you see the Galaxy S20 at $1,000, this isn't really that you know, it's a jump, obviously, but it's in the same, like, it's in the same room, at least. Uh, If you were somebody that thinks that the OnePlus 7T is a great value, this is like, you know, three buildings down, this isn't even in the same, the same area, because it's twice the price of, you know, really capable phones in that arena. So I kind of looked at it through the lens of somebody's already willing to go for a high end phone, maybe an S20, S20 plus something like that. And you're just paying marginally more. Um, And in that, you know, when you start looking at it that way, you start to understand why there are just marginal improvements around here. Obviously, it's a bigger phone, uh, bigger display, giant battery, 5000 milliamp hour and an entirely new camera setup, even from the S20 and S20 plus. And so that kind of makes sense that it's not going to be revolutionarily different from the S20 and S20 plus, but you know, all of those, you know, those phones up their prices too this year. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really the, the thing about this phone is that it's, it's the kind of the, the far extreme of a trend that we've been seeing for three years. And, um, and it's on the one hand, you know, it's starting to normalize, Fourteen hundred dollars in a sea of yeah. You know, we just heard of the the Huawei um, Mate XS announced this week. Yeah, uh, it's twenty five hundred euros. So we don't even have a U.S. price. It won't come to the to the U.S. But twenty five hundred euros for a phone. It makes phones like the Galaxy S twenty Ultra not cheap, but certainly more palatable. And then when you have a 
a dearth of cheap Galaxy flagships this year. Um, there's there is no E variant, for instance. You kind of have to think about um, how how am I going to make my decision? Right? Am I going to plan on holding onto this phone for three, maybe four years to help amortize that cost, or um, am I maybe just going to use it for a couple of years and hope that its resale value stays high enough that I can make some of it back when I buy my new phone in, in a year or two. Or as Samsung hopes, um, you know, trade it in at a very inflated rate to get the next Samsung phone in a year or two. Yeah, we had a lot of people on staff do that. They they had a Galaxy S10 or a Note 10, and Samsung's giving way more than the open market's giving them. They're, give, they're offering, I think, between six and $700 for these phones it's like over half you know just somewhere between half and two-thirds of the price of the phone back in a year is pretty crazy yeah and and i think that is that is one of samsung's ways to keep people loyal right offering better better prices on samsung phones than they would on any other manufacturer i mean they don't limit you that you can trade in an an, a an iphone for instance and you'll still get a few hundred dollars but nowhere near the cost of a galaxy s 10 plus or a note 10 plus which yeah you know that is that is samsung's kind of way of keeping you in the family here so i think the big question that people want to know is yes it's big yes it's unwieldy but does that extra space that extra weight um is it justified in light of that really really complex and ambitious camera setup that they have on the phone yeah, I think that we should definitely start with the camera and then we could talk about the display battery combination later. But the camera is, I mean, you you have the S20 and S20 Plus. So you've been able to do actual like some more anecdotal side-by-side tests. I only have the Ultra and so I could just compare it to the Pixel 4 XL and the Galaxy S10 Plus. It's a massive step up from the S10 Plus. Now that's... You know, we're again, we're talking relative here because the S10 Plus was clearly showing its age with its camera that's been around for a couple generations. But this main sensor, this 108 megapixel sensor is so fundamentally good in that it's just massive and has a really bright lens in front of it. And this nine to one pixel binning to take 12 megapixel photos gives it really good fundamental like clarity and low noise in all kinds of lighting conditions but i think you put it the best when you explained it as it's a great fundamental sensor still passing that data through samsung's similar processing as it's always been using and that's kind of your dichotomy there where you really wanted to see even better performance out of this like the the sensor is, seems to be held back by Samsung's processing because it still takes very Samsung-y photos for like for lack it has all of the same quirks as the S10. It's just the floor has been raised because the sensor is so damn good. And things like uh losing a lot of facial detail in lower lighting uh conditions, still not being able to handle like the really, really dark scenes like um night sight can. Uh, still relying on slower shutter speeds uh, to fight high ISOs, so introducing a lot of blur sometimes. 
and uh, really over sharpening details too much. These are all things that we saw with the S10 generation, and we're seeing them again here. They just don't manifest themselves as strongly because the sensor is so good. Yeah, and we have to say that Samsung um, last night, so Wednesday the 26th, uh, this this sort of narrative around the issues people or early reviewers have been having with the Ultra's camera, namely it's... Uh, difficulty focusing on subjects, especially subjects that are moving even slowly. Um, you know, some some uh, uh, lack of, of detail in, in people's faces. I mean, that's been a problem with Samsung phones forever, so I don't know if they're addressing it. But Samsung did send you a, um, a, a, an email uh, with, with a statement saying that there will be something, right? There'll, there's going to be a patch. It'll likely be a day one patch because it's still a week out um tomorrow yeah, until it's the not phone's on sale till the sixth. So, you know, it's it's one of those things where you can really take for granted that this is um you know this is going to be something Samsung tries to address. But re- in reality, when was the last time a camera patch completely fixed a, a a phone's camera problems? Yeah, and that's why I already, you know, I don't like to see that we already have this this narrative cropping up in some places where it's like, oh, we'll just wait for the the camera update is going to fix all of these things. You know, I still have to evaluate it exactly, you know, as it shipped to me and it showing some side by side test of, oh, this one got the update, this one didn't. And it's all it's all very, you know, shades of gray and anecdotal, and it's kind of hard to nail it down. So I have to just evaluate it as as I saw it. I didn't see the autofocus issues as much as a lot of people are really honing in on them. I noticed it in some low low light situations and especially while zooming, uh, it would hunt for focus sometimes. But of course, you know, everybody's the, the thing about photos in general, of course, is everybody has their own eye for things, how they're taking the shots, the kind of photos they're taking in the first place. And so everybody sees different uh, kinds of scenarios. Um I think that's probably a good place to also talk about the zoom where I've been really high on the zoom, but everybody's threshold at, you know, at which zoom level they think that the quality is unacceptable is different. Um, I see the zoom as being really solid up to about 10 X. And in some cases, if it's really bright out, 15 X can be passable, but kind of everything else beyond that is, is, you know, really useless. How about you? I agree. I think um, I would say 10x is pushing it. So just to give people the actual spec here, there is a periscope lens attached to a 48 megapixel sensor that can natively shoot at 4x. So the you know, lossless, like we're talking about truly lossless, it only goes up to 4x. Uh, be, between 4 and 10, Samsung is saying, that it's it's hybrid lossless. So it's combining data with the primary sensor and you can get away with saying that it's relatively lossless. And I will agree with you, in good lighting, you can achieve really, really impressive results at 10X. I would say I've seen situations where 30X is passable if only to... Um, sort of read lettering on the side of a building kind of thing like you don't you're not yeah. looking for very very obvious and 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 uh, rich detail from a 30x photo from the ultra but it is usable and 
my threshold, because you know, I'll get to this in a minute, but I have all three units because Samsung Canada is awesome and they sent me all three units. The Galaxy S20 and 20 Plus can go up to 30x in total. So that that is the maximum zoom that they support. And comparing the Ultra's 30x to the regular S20 and the S20 Plus's 30x is is night and day. Like the yeah. you just get so much more detail from combining the telephoto on the ultra with the primary sensors 108 megapixels um so you can use it but i would say don't don't expect much beyond 10x and that <clears throat> that point really you know comes across when you take a well it's really funny because when you press the zoom button in the viewfinder it jumps to 5x even though the native telephoto lens is 4x it's kind of a weird thing i guess they just wanted to reach out further but 4x or 5x doesn't make a difference when you take a photo there you can get really really good photos because the sensor is still really big and the lens is fast and so in anything but really bad lighting uh i could get four or five x photos that were very comparable to the main sensor which is really good when we're all used to telephoto quote unquote just being a 2x lens and it really, you know, it's not that big of a change of perspective. Uh, it takes some getting used to because you're used to being able to just zoom a little bit and not like make that you know huge of a jump. But once you're used to, you know, the kind of uh, get away from the jarring experience of going to 5x, you can take really nice classically telephoto shots with a narrow field of view uh, that that look really good. Yeah, my issue here is the promise versus the delivery, right? Like Samsung literally put a hundred X on the back of the phone, you know, they're, they're they're leaning so heavily into this space zoom feature on the, on the, in the marketing. And they're, they're essentially lying to consumers about what they'll expect, what, what they'll get from a hundred X. And I don't like that. And even, even 60 X is really, I mean, it's an oil painting. It is. It's it's basically you're you're looking you're looking at sort of a, a, an approximation of pixels, right? Like there there's so much sharpening happening and so much you, you know there, it it just it seems so artificial that it's not worth scrutinizing, right? Going and if if I was going to give Samsung one uh, <laughs> play devil's advocate for one second for Samsung is. The big it makes a massive difference how far away the thing is that you're zooming on. So if you're doing a hundred x zoom on just like a car at the end of the street, it shows you it sh- it shows the weakness way more than if you're on the the top of a high rise building shooting the top of another high rise building across the city. Yes, like perspective there really does matter. Sure. Uh, that's that's fair. And, it you know, I guess it, it kind of depends on what your definition of telephoto is. So you have a couple of examples in your review where, you know, you're standing, I think you're, you're standing outside of a synagogue and like you're pretty mm-hmm. close to the actual, like you're what, across the street from it? Yeah, just across the street. So that's an interesting comparison because you go to 100X and they're at that 100X, you're seeing the stained glass window and you're getting some decent amount of detail right it's not completely lost you can still kind of tell what it is Mm -hmm. but if you are standing across the river 
of you know and, and you want to take a photo of uh, of like a car on the bridge uh on like the brooklyn bridge or something you are not going to get that car at 100x like it's just not happening you would maybe you'd be able to see a billboard or like a giant uh tower clock on the top of a building right so you're absolutely right and i think it it deserves that kind of context but it is it's still misleading it's still it unnecessarily really misleading it's it's the equivalent of putting a bixby button on a phone and then telling people that their new smart assistant is useful right like <laughs> yeah it is and and samsung has they they've it took them two generations but they went back on it three generations galaxy s8 s9 and s10 yeah three generations and then finally got rid of the bixby button and people you know bixby it's if if this is sort of a, a tangent but like if you go to what used to be called bixby home on a new samsung phone it is now called samsung daily so bixby yeah. is not really a prominent part of the strategy anymore my guess is that this 100x space zoom branding does not last beyond the galaxy s20 series yeah i don't think so either and the the unfortunate thing there is that of like you explained of the models the ultra zoom is the most real as far as you know actual zoom goes they're not using the space zoom branding on the lower two but they're still claiming way higher zoom levels than is as is at all practical and so they're probably gonna ditch it and try you know something else instead you know next time or the time after that uh i don't think that this i mean they're already running into massive physical barriers with the size of this sensor and lens combination and what it does to the back of the phone and the the benefits are clearly um i mean it's not even a party trick it's just it's something for reviewers to look at and very few people will will ever touch i want to get a bit into just this foundational idea of um of of compromise when it comes to smartphone cameras and we've sp i think every year around this time we speak about this but when you are taking a photo, especially a photo of of a person, so you expect expect to see certain things on their face, like pores and and like freckles and and whatever, um, you know, a phone manufacturer has to contend with a few things. If it's low light, they have the option of keeping the shutter speed relatively high to prevent or or lower the occurrence of blur, and by doing that, they may have to ramp up the ISO or the noise sense or the light sensitivity, which would int introduce grain. I've had an issue with the way that Samsung takes photos of people for many years. And I was hoping that with a larger sensor, Samsung would use that extra light to keep shutter speed high. And also, if necessary, introduce a mild amount of grain because at higher ISO, there would be lower inherent grain because it's just a bigger sensor so that it would preserve facial detail. That was my dream. It would allow me to stop taking photos with my Pixel because I really want to use this as my main phone. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. What happened mm -hmm. was Samsung kept its inherent sort of institutional desire to smooth faces at the expense of introducing grain. And I think it it, it actually occurred to me that the company has an... A, 
an an allergy or or an institutional aver, um, aversion to grain in their phone fo- in their photos. Like there's yeah. no other way to put it. There's no and that comes explanation. across also with I mean with the shutter speeds absolutely is the biggest one that shows up. But it also comes across in how much sharpening is applied to every single photo, regardless of lighting condition. That they would happily take kind of blotchy chroma noise from over sharpening things than see any amount of grain in a photo. Yeah. And it I, I don't know if it's part of just the the engineering culture there that they've been doing this so long that they refuse to change, even though they have a sensor large enough to negate most of the grain anyway. But this is also a, a camera app that still ships with beauty mode for smoothing faces turned on on the front and rear cameras by default yeah it's it's very strange and they um, really hate it they really really hate texture and i I mean i i've said it but you know this is an entreaty to, to samsung right i want to see people's facial detail when i take a photo and if you go to your review there are a couple of um examples where you take photos of people in really good daylight yeah. Um, conditions. That's Namely, what I was going to Hayato Husman, our uh, esteemed video editor, and David Imel, Android Authority's esteemed video editor uh, and reviewer. And those those two, their faces look normal. I mean, this is basically yeah. a photo you would take on a pixel. The uh, details are incredible. It's, in those. it's perfect. But if you if you go inside and you're taking photos with artificial lighting, that will not be the case. And on a pixel or an iPhone you will see more grain, but you will also see more detail. And it's still a problem for me. So I'm not going to continue harping on it because I've said it so many times, but that's my main issue. And I'm having that issue on the Ultra and on the other two phones as well. But let's, um, let's I mean, let's keep harping on it in a, in a different way, though, to just talk about low light performance in general, because I was just scrolling through the the typical area where smartphone cameras in general, but Samsung's cameras in particular fall flat is like the dark or dim restaurant scene at night where I was just looking at the shutter speeds and ISOs on a few photos. I, I took at dinner on Tuesday and we're looking at shutter speeds of one fourth of a second or one tenth of a second, like shutter speeds that are so long that there's zero way that you would ever be able to have a sharp shot of anything but an uh, inanimate object. And even then, you know, your hand motion is, you know, just as big of a factor there as anything else. And in these scenes, if you can hold yourself perfectly steady, you'll get an amazing photo out of this camera because it, their aversion to having grain means the ISO stays down. Everything is extremely crisp. The problem is if you if it has to drop down to a quarter of a second shutter speed, it one out of you know you're only going to get one out of ten shots that are actually going to be sharp because if you move any amount, it's gonna bl- it's gonna blur that and it's just going to be a trash photo. And that's something that I kept seeing time after time after time. It really wants slow shutter speeds and sometimes it works, you know, comes off and you're like, wow, this is a pixel level, perfect low light shot. But most of the time it's not, it's just a, it's just kind of a soft blurry photo. Yeah. And and I think what's interesting is that Samsung still 
um, approaches uh, low light and night mode photos very differently from Google, right? Google uses a keyframe, so they, you know, they'll they'll have a an extended shutter speed or an extended um, shooting time up to you know ten seconds or or eight seconds or something, but they still use a primary frame for the photo, so it minimizes blur because it's not literally combining frames in uh in a way that will introduce this sort of like ghost effect if your if your subject moves that's how google does it they they take data from the subsequent frames and they intelligently combine it into that primary frame right samsung does not do that samsung will extend the uh the the shooting time for a long time i mean i I saw photos take up to 10 seconds to shoot i saw 20 seconds in night mode okay so that's a problem if you have any sort of movement in your subject and it will eventually ruin your photo if you have enough movement i mean the same thing with a pixel right don't get me wrong but it's not nearly as severe yeah and that's the the biggest thing is if you just think about how normal people take photos it's, you know, you pull up the phone and you snap a picture and then you put the phone back down. You're not doing the thing that us nerds do where you're like always looking to brace your arm like up against a table or you're leaning against a wall or like do whatever you can to in, to steady the shot. You know, normal people don't do that. Even if, you know, your subject is stationary, they're just, you know, you're just going to handheld it and you're going to you're going to take your photo. And this doesn't work that way and if that's the only way you can get these top tier low light photos then that doesn't really that doesn't really work uh, especially for for a phone that's supposed to have main mainstream appeal of some sort you know being a samsung phone well i mean it, it has the mainstream appeal if you think about how the the market penetration of a pixel it's nothing compared to this and my you know the reason we harp on this is because millions of people are going to buy these phones and they need to be good. And the way that I put it was, you know, I I think when you read the camera section of my review, it's it's maybe a little on the negative side, but I'm I'm being hard on the camera because I care and I see that there's va- like there there are valuable aspects to this camera. The I I pointed out that you can look at all of the whatever 40 something photos I put in that review I love every single one of them. I don't put photos in the review that I that aren't a perfect representation of what the camera is capable of. What you don't see is all of the total terrible photos that I took that show the inconsistency of the camera and inconsistency or consistency was one of the hallmarks of Samsung's cameras even if the ceiling was a bit lower and you knew that there were shortcomings in low light you knew the scenarios in which it wasn't going to perform well. And you also knew exactly what you were going to get in other scenarios. This is more of a mixed bag where you kind of have to learn what works and what doesn't, when to use night mode, when to not, you know, when you need to uh, stabilize your shot or when you need to use tap to focus or adjust your brightness or whatever. And that's just seems antithetical to the way that Samsung's cameras usually work. Yeah. I also want to say though, um, if you're coming from a Galaxy S6 or 7 or even Galaxy S8, this is going to be a massive upgrade. Any of these phones are going to be massive upgrades. 
So huge. You know, we're we're coming from the Pixel has proven to be the best camera in the Android ecosystem for a long time, right? The iPhone 11 Pro caught up to the Pixel in many respects, and those two sort of hover at the top. Huawei's P30 and Mate 30 do a lot of things really well and actually better than Samsung uh, or or even Google, but Samsung needed to catch up this year. And in many respects, they did. There are so many good things about this camera, but the bar... The floor was so much lower because the S10 and Note 10 series were so far behind that even with this monumental leap, they're still not there. They're still not at the top. And it's not, and it's it's been four years now that we can say that. And that's not something that I think many people expected. No, I I mean, you just you had hope that with you know, if you're going to go all out and redesign the entire camera system, you know, top to bottom, you would you would hope that that would also come with, you know, just results that are resoundingly, uh, you know, far and away better. And especially, again, if we're talking about a fourteen hundred dollar phone. Yeah, like we talked a lot about how the, the Pixel 4 XL was expensive for what it was, but like this is several hundred dollars more. And in most cases, the camera is just. I think it's at best the same um, and at its at its worst, um, a solid notch below. Okay, so I'll talk a little bit about the other two phones because I've had a chance to use them. I'm right now using the Galaxy S10 or sorry, S20 Plus as my main primary phone. And I did use the Ultra at the beginning. So I went from using the Ultra to the S20 Plus. And I have to say the size difference is significant, right? You don't, you may not think it because the yeah, screen that size- Yeah, 0.2 inches on the screen is just not, you know, you don't think about it being that big. But it's it's much lighter and the camera bump is not as, it, it's not as distracting. Like what I, what I would find is that the camera bump would get caught on the inside of my pocket whenever I tried to take it out of my pocket. And how about the way it makes the phone vibrate on a table? Yeah, I mean, the thing is just monstrous. It's like, if you remember the vibration of the HTC One M8, where it would just like vibrate itself off a table. <laughs> oh, yes, right, because it, was, uh, it wasn't flat. It wasn't flat, but it was just the, the vibration motor was so overpowered, and the default settings were like just like, they, they, were, they were like earthquake level. Whenever I left my phone in another room and it would vibrate, I would like have to go run and get it because it would be so distracting. So this is similar to that, but the the Galaxy S20 Plus is much more usable and I have had nothing but good things to say about the experience other than the aforementioned camera problems. Battery life has been really good. I have been keeping 120 hertz on and I want to talk about the screen in a sec, mm-hmm. but the the phone overall has been a joy to use and if you don't need the extra zoom on the ultra i would recommend going with the s20 plus and i'm actually leaning towards saying that it's going to be one of the best phones of this year like everybody was like oh well the ultra is the best phone and then the s20 is the small cheaper one so nobody's going to pay attention to the plus my thought on this is that most people are going to ignore the ultra and go with the plus because it's the best compromise. Yeah, I agree with you there. Just from the, I mean, even if you just look at price and size, I mean, it just brings the the appeal up when you know your addressable market is so much larger. Uh, the ultra is just, 
I don't know if we talked about the size enough. It's it's huge and it's extremely heavy. And like that's going to be a problem for a lot of people. It is. It's going to be an issue, but it's also just going to be um it's it's just going to be one of those things where it's hard to make a decision, right? Because if you if you don't have the context, you're going to assume that the Ultra, you know, if you just want the best phone, you're going to assume the Ultra is the best phone that it's worth the extra money. And in yeah. fact, I don't actually think it is unless you need it for those very specific situations. So I I'm going to I'm still writing my Ultra my uh, S20 Plus review it'll be out early next week, but stay tuned for that. Um, I want to I want to talk about the display though. So this is obviously a Samsung AMOLED display, the best of the best of the best. But it's the first Looks introduced great. 120 hertz. Tell us about your experience with that feature turned on. Uh, my experience is that it looks glorious, and I want every single mobile display to be at least 90 hertz, but 120 is just, you know, icing on the cake, I guess. It's really, really nice. Uh, but I was confused because the phone didn't ship with it out of the box. It ships in full HD uh, resolution like every other Samsung phone, but also 60 hertz. And I turned on 120 hertz, and then I was really frustrated because the battery life was hot, hot, hot garbage on this phone with 120 hertz turned on. And obviously, I was using the phone a lot, especially over that first weekend. Hayato and I were shooting uh, video. I was looking, you know, I had four or five uh, close to six hours of screen on time for a couple of days because the phone was just sitting there with its screen on, not actually doing anything. It's not like we were playing games or you know, doing for editing photos or doing something intense, just having the screen on, uh, the phone would barely make it 12 hours before I was in the single digits and, you know, needing to charge at, at dinner time and, uh, dropping back to 60 Hertz, all of a sudden battery life is just amazing. So I saw about a 30% difference in battery life overall by jumping to, to 120 Hertz, which is, that's a pretty massive drop, I would say. That is really interesting. Um, that that is in line with Tom's guide's synthetic tests, where they did a a, a canned kind of loop web view test, um, and they had the Galaxy S twenty Ultra looping a bunch of websites and videos at both one hundred and twenty and one hundred and sixty hertz, or sorry, one hundred and twenty and sixty hertz, and they did find a twenty five percent impact in having that higher refresh rate. I would say most people will want to keep it on and deal with the with the battery impact because it's not like the Pixel 4 where it's going to be dead by 4 p.m. Yeah, I think most people can get by. The way that I described it was if you're if your screen on time is going to hover around 3 hours, you're probably going to be fine. Obviously, this only affects the phone's battery when the screen is on, so the amount of screen on time you have dramatically affects the battery life there. So I think that, that the line is around three hours. If you're going to use more than that, you're probably not going to make it through a whole day. But if you use about that amount, yeah, just like treat your eyes to that. The, the 120 hertz looks great. Right. And it's also, I've had a very different experience. And, and part of it may be because where you are, uh, you're in New York, you are on Verizon, You've been kind of cycling. We can maybe talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're you're cycling back and forth. I know you turned 5G off for the bulk of your review, but um, you know, 
I've always found that because of the density of a city like New York, my phone tends to hunt for a strong signal. And that really yeah. does impact uh, battery life. Whereas, And I'm going in and out of the subway every day. Like there's lots of bouncing around, lots of Wi-Fi networks. R- exactly. And and my, my thing is I've had a very different experience on the Galaxy S20 Plus where I have consistently either on, I'm just on Wi-Fi at home or I have a, a consistently strong LTE signal. And uh, on Tuesday, I got seven hours of screen on time um, with 120 hertz turned on. And yesterday, I did about three and a half hours of screen on time, and I went to bed around midnight with uh, 38% battery remaining in the, in the phone. That's with yeah, 120 that's hertz on. So I just want to I want to say that it does not appear like this is a it may be an ultra specific issue, but it's probably a confluence of issues around 120 hertz plus 5G slash you know not not consistent connectivity slash a whole bunch of other things that you're doing on your phone. I think the big thing is it just it takes away a lot of your flexibility. It takes enough off the top that I wouldn't feel like I wouldn't feel confident the way that I normally do with the Samsung phone, just like picking up a game for 30 minutes or turning on the hotspot for an hour and a half, you know, whenever I need to or, you know, all of these things where I have to think about that type of stuff on the pixel every single day, no matter what, um, I have to think about mitigating battery, whereas on my Galaxy S10 Plus, I never thought about that. I just used it however I wanted, and it just never let me down. Uh, switching to 120 was the only time where I had to think about it. Uh, I would, you know, get into, you know, I would get to lunchtime, and I would already be at 50%. And it's like, oh, wait, yeah, I'm going to have to take it easy for the rest of the day or find a charger. Uh, but on 60 hertz it performs the way you'd expect for a 5,000 milliamp hour battery. The thing is a a complete champ. This episode of the Android Central Podcast is brought to you by Clear. Clear makes your life safer, simpler, and more secure. Clear is working towards a future where you are your ID, enabling you to leave an unstoppable life. With Clear, your eyes and fingertips get you through security faster at airports, stadiums, and other venues. So what is so great about Clear? Well, Clear gives you peace of mind. With just a simple tap of a finger, it helps you zip through airport security and relax before your flight. So how does it work? Instead of an ID, Clear uses your eyes and fingertips to confirm that you are you, helping you get through security faster. Signing up for Clear is also easy. You go online, you finish enrolling, and when you get there, with the help of a friendly Clear ambassador, there is no appointment and it takes about five minutes. Once you are done, you can clear right then and there. And it's not just airports. Although Clear does help you get through security faster at over 65 airports in the country, there are also sports venues and other locations that support it. And there are family plans. Clear members can add up to three adult family members for the discounted rate of only $50 a year. Kids under 18 can tag along for free when using Clear. So this is something that you really want. I hate traveling, but with Clear, I get through security way faster. It's 
so much less stressful than having to wade through security. And it's really easy to just set up and get going. And as I said, there are 65 airports that support Clear. So if you want to sign up for Clear right now, you can get your first two months for free by going to clearme.com slash central and use the code central at checkout. That's C-L-E-A-R-M-E dot com slash central, code central for free two months of Clear. So let's talk a bit about 5G because you've had... um a really interesting experience with it. It's the first time you've used a 5G phone in New York and yep. you're on Verizon. Verizon is exclusively millimeter wave in New York City. It's exclusively millimeter wave all over the country right now. But this is the first phone that has a Snapdragon 865 and the X55 modem. So things should be considerably better than they used to, but we're not seeing that so much. No, I mean ultimately the. I mean, I I was actually a uh, a victim of the of the marketing because when I moved to New York, like I re, you know they've tested they've been testing five G here. They run all those commercials showing things in New York. They have all these billboards up. Every single Verizon store is branded as having five G and things. Uh, even ones in my neighborhood uh, where five G is cannot be found for forty blocks in any direction. And that's kind of the big thing. You have to go find 5G here. And that's um, that's kind of, that's your issue. First of all, it's only outdoors, but we kind of already knew that based on our, our early tests when we tested um, in Chicago and um, our friend Michael Fisher tested in Rhode Island. Like you have to be outside and not just a little outside. You have to be standing on a street corner or in a park or a building plaza or something like that. And when you go to look at Verizon's coverage maps, uh, good on them. They actually have a coverage map that shows like really, really granular information about where coverage is, but it's like down to the foot. They show on the coverage map exactly where the coverage ends in the middle of the block, like at this angle from where the small cell is obviously unable to, you know, beat the building it's next to, uh, et cetera. And so you walk down the street and you see the 5G ultra wideband logo come up. You, you know, it works just fine. Within about 30 seconds of walking, you're going to be without service again. There's, there's no place in New York in which you can walk for, I think more than a minute and a half and not run out of 5G coverage again. And that's just so incredibly frustrating that it kind of beats the whole defeats the whole point of mobile networks because it's it's such a static experience to to get millimeter wave. Okay, so our friend Sasha Segan, he is the uh I think he's editor in chief or chief analyst or whatever his title is for PC Mag. He gave the Ultra a, a very tepid review, and part of his uh, negativity was just how complicated the 5G narrative is in the U.S. right now, and that because the, the phone is being marketed as the first phone to be kind of cross-compatible in the U.S. from a 5G perspective, they have one SKU that's supposed to work with all of the 5G networks. He said that it's really much more complicated than that. For instance, yeah. um, AT&T does not have a 
5G network uh, available to most consumers yet. Their millimeter wave network is is limited to um, to businesses, and then they have a very small sub six network that is based on eight hundred on their uh, band five, so eight hundred and fifty megahertz service, and it's not a large swath of the U.S. And they are also missing a bunch of features in this phone that will only debut in the Galaxy S30 next year with the X60 modem that was announced recently. So basically, AT&T told Sasha, don't use the Ultra on 5G. Just don't even activate it. It's not going to work properly. So that's yep, great. They, yeah, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, next one was Sprint and T-Mobile. Obviously, the merger has basically been approved. They're expecting it to be finalized on April 1st. So we'll, we're just going to talk about T-Mobile. But the, AT the T-Mobile 5G experience in the U.S. is such that the phone needs a software update to to, to really take advantage of T-Mobile's sub-6, uh, 600 megahertz spectrum. And Yeah, the only phone there that, that can access it all is the OnePlus 7T Pro McLaren edition. Exactly. So this will happen, but it'll happen as a patch probably on day one. So he didn't have a great experience on T-Mobile. And his thing was that he actually had the best experience on Verizon because it just, even though it's so limited, when it works, it works really well. Yeah, and it and it does. When you connect, I mean, uh, between testing in Manhattan and Brooklyn, you get about a gigabit per second, upwards of two gigabit per second in some cases in Brooklyn. And, you know, that that's amazing. There, there are multiple issues, as I pointed out, though. I mean, uh, you know, adding to that, uploads are over LTE only. I was seeing 900 megabits per second download and five megabits per second upload, which is hilarious. And there are problems where you can't even you can't even be sitting inside up against a window and get millimeter wave. You have to actually be outside. And I don't know about you, but uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time outside in February in New York. So I'm really trying to limit my time uh, standing on a street corner in Midtown. Uh, I mean, for multiple reasons, no matter what the weather is. But, you know, it's it does work when you get on it and it doesn't jump back and forth. And Sasha was explaining to me on Tuesday that the really nice thing about millimeter wave on Verizon is that it doesn't just assume that it's there. It actually waits to be able to connect and transfer data and then it connects and you have the connection right away. Whereas in the case of T-Mobile, because it's running its sub six network on the same towers as its LTE network, the if the phone connects to an LTE tower that is enabled with sub six, it'll tell you you're on 5G, even if you're not actively connected to 5G, if that makes sense. So it's even fudging that range and that coverage a little bit as it is. Right. And then, of course, when you connect, it's nowhere near millimeter wave speeds. So it's it's a really messy situation. And it's the reason why I broke it out into a separate section of my review. And I really didn't want it to affect the score of the phone because this is n absolutely nothing that Samsung could do anything about. So what's interesting is you know, Samsung is just the the messenger here to some extent, right? It's just putting out its phone. It's it's working with Qualcomm and the carriers to make it very clear that these are 5G-enabled phones. But by and large, Samsung is just giving people the limited 5G experience that their carriers 
are are able to right now. Um, and yet, because it's first and because it's the most prominent, it's going to be the sort of poster child for that dysfunction. And that's that's unfortunate, but it's not exactly Samsung's fault. And it was never going to be able to range, you know, two separate 4G and 5G phones anyway. Like we were just going to get 5G no matter what, even if the networks weren't ready. And we knew that because Qualcomm told us last year that they're not selling the 865 without this X55 modem included. And we actually saw a phone announced earlier this week in India where there are no 5G networks that just has the 5G component disabled, like full on, not (laughs) even available. If you go to another country that has 5G, the software just will not use it. And that was just, it's just going to be things, that's going to be something that manufacturers have to figure out this year, right? Do you want to keep that component on and not in use or just hide it completely and disable it? And then, you know, you still have the option of passing along that additional price to consumers or eat eat the cost because we know that Snapdragon 865 is more expensive. I wonder, though, if you are thinking about buying this phone, right? This is a phone that many carriers are going to use to upsell you to a new 5G capable plan. Is it worth, maybe this is a bit in the weeds, but is it worth going through your carrier and then having them sort of like convince you to change your plan? Or should you just buy it from Samsung on their very similar payment plan, which is like a 0% interest, blah, 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 and just keep the same plan you have, even if it's not 5G enabled? Absolutely the latter. Uh, I mean, I would not recommend anybody go out of their way to sign up for a separate 5g plan to use this phone i mean i've had a way better experience on verizon around new york which again we've talked about all the all the issues with new york in particular than using lte than i have with with 5g their lte network is really really good and I just ha- I just haven't seen a reason to even bother with it. And I'm I'm just reviewing it with a free SIM in which I didn't have to pay extra for a 5G plan or, you know, go through all that issue. I would rather just buy it unlocked and put my SIM card in it, honestly, and just use it as an LTE phone. And you can always switch plans, get your new SIM card, get your thing whitelisted, however it needs to happen, you know, a year from now, if you feel like it's, it's better then. So I want to finish up talking about the Galaxy S20 because we only have a few minutes and I want to talk a little bit about the LG V60. What's your sort of TLDR on this, on the Ultra in particular? And if somebody is upgrading and they just want the best of the best, is this the phone to get or should they wait for something else later in the year? Uh, I think that if you're the kind of person that really does want the best of the best, you just, you and you like the idea of a Samsung phone in general, you're not like, you know, jumping around from something completely different. It's a really good phone to go for. Uh, You're also the kind of person that is probably going to be fickle enough to get something new in another six or 12 months anyway. And so you, you know, you don't really get a lot of benefit from waiting. This is going to be the big top end phone for multiple months. We're not going to see, I mean, when we talk about the V60, you'll see, there's nothing else that's kind of like just blow the ultra out of the water in the next two months or something like that. It's, it really is good. And you're probably the kind of person that doesn't need something more balanced and subtle 
like the S20 Plus. Yeah, I I would agree with you. Okay, uh, very, very quickly. So you also had an opportunity last week to go hands-on with LG's upcoming flagship, the V60 mm-hmm. ThinQ 5G. Henceforth to just be known as the V60. Yes, thank you. That was the last, only in last time I'm going to say that. Um, it is an LG flagship, so probably not going to be as exciting as a Samsung flagship. However... Uh, anecdotally, and I know this is just our experience, but based on the traffic coming to the article, the V60 is considerably more exciting to the average user than the V50, the G8, the V40, the V30. Mm-hmm. I mean, there hasn't been as as much excitement about a an LG phone since probably the G7 V20 or the V. 10 v, yeah. i don't know i would even say the g6 ago. really but <laughs> yeah so tell us about why people some people are excited about this phone i think it's just perfectly timed with samsung going really expensive on their phones and then lg kind of doing what it's always done bringing out a phone that's almost as good uh maybe like gives up a little you know gives a little bit of space in a couple different areas but in this case actually hit the price even though we don't know the actual price because LG is going to always be LG, but they said it's going to be under a thousand dollars. And that's for a phone that's 6.8 inches. It's basically the same size as an S 20 ultra, but it, and it has the same 5,000 milliamp hour battery, but it just skimps a tiny bit in that it only has two rear cameras. Well, there's a time of flight rear camera, whatever. There's just a main, um, 64 megapixel camera and then a ultra wide camera Um, It's only a full HD display at 60 hertz. Uh, It doesn't do any of this crazy zooming or anything like that with the camera. It uh, but uh, and it only has eight gigs of RAM instead of 12. But otherwise, it's just a spec by spec, you know, line item all the way across to the S20 and uh, sorry, S20 plus and S20 ultra. And for 200 to 400 dollars less than those phones, it's you know, you'd be kind of silly not to look at it if you're at all price conscious. And then we have this whole dual screen accessory attachment thing, which you either care about it and you appreciate that it's included in the box or you don't care about it at all. And you could say, well, I didn't pay any extra for it. And you could just toss it aside. Yeah, I mean, I've been using that dual screen accessory on the G8X for a few months, and there are times where I genuinely think it's a brilliant addition, especially given that it's free, and it's genuinely useful in some situations. This is a better designed accessory than the G8X and the V50. Those just felt like kind of throwaway things that they tossed in the box. This feels like it's a case that also has a screen in it. Like it's a well-designed, nice, um, it, it's nice and protective. It has a, you know, that has that front LED that um, or LCD that gives you some notifications. The other ones mm-hmm. did too. But if you look on the back of the phone compared to the V50 and the, the G8X, this feels like much more cohesive. And it's also, this is a phone that will be under $1,000 according to LG, which is which makes it considerably um, cheaper than the it's you know it's rival here, which is the Galaxy S twenty plus. Yeah, I just um, I think it's it look it's not going to steal a bunch of sales from anything. It's just going to kind of plug along as LG's phones usually do. But I just don't think this is one to just completely dismiss out of hand. 
especially when they you know they they nailed the the pricing scheme in a year when everybody else went up they kind of just stayed flat like that's great and yeah i'm just a little cautious because we don't know what they're going to do with the camera i actually need to use it because we've been burned a lot by lg's cameras they've just really really not been good pretty much since the g6 right and Obviously, there's this big thing in the kind of more enthusiast uh, community of things of um, of Android phones where, yeah, their their hardware reliability has not been great and their software update schedule has been particularly bad as well. Yeah. And that's my major issue here is that I actually like Android 10 on LG's phones. I think it gets away from so many of the problems that previous versions had. But you probably won't see Android 11 for a long time. And that to me is 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 still such a knock against them. And it you know, if you care about audio quality, this is the phone to get, right? It has It has a headphone jack. It has a headphone jack, it has a really high quality DAC. It's got great haptics, it's got great speakers. You know, you can put it in the dual dis- in the uh, case accessory dual display thing and set it down on a table open and it will just kind of be your boombox. Like there are so many benefits to this design and yet the knowledge that it won't receive updates is just it it really really makes it hard to recommend yeah it it really does i i i'm cautiously optimistic to to check it out but ultimately the problem is a lot of people are going to be like all right i would just rather take the smaller galaxy s20 instead i know samsung better uh the the thing is just if you were to look at this thing and it had a different brand on the back, it just it said Samsung on the back, you would have no idea. It is like a perfect it really does representation of like Samsung's hardware. It's crazy. I looked at the back of this phone and I'm like, that's a Galaxy S10. It, it is yeah. it is the exact same design as the Galaxy S10. It's wild. Yeah. Um all right. Well, we don't really know a lot about it. We don't have an official price. We don't have any carrier details. We do know that it won't be sold unlocked which is unfortunate, but I guess LG just doesn't sell enough to make it worthwhile in the US. It is coming soon, though, so check out Android Central for more. We're going to leave it there and um, and, and let you get back to your your Reply All episode. Andrew, thank you so (laughs) much for giving us all of your thoughts on the Galaxy S20 Ultra. Go to androidcentral.com and look at his amazing review. Check out our video review on YouTube and let us know what you think. Email podcast at Android Central for all of your inf- uh, for all of your comments and questions for future episodes if you want. And one last request: if you have the ability, please leave Android Central podcast a review on iTunes or any other service that allows you to leave reviews. It really helps us get the word out there, and it makes the algorithms care about our show a bit more. So it puts them in our in discovery list and trending and all those other good things. And uh, we really, really appreciate when people leave reviews. So that's, that's it. Uh, we will talk to you next week with lots more information about the Galaxy S20 and what's happening with uh, the coronavirus. Things are starting to affect the actual production. Getting a little crazy. Of, uh, of, of phones. So... We'll be back with a lot more next week. Andrew, have a great weekend. You too. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye, folks.